0: are continuing to study the gospel of Luke selectively, not looking at every single portion as we go. It's not been more than a few years that we went through Matthew, and there are many, as you probably know, direct parallels. I'm trying to particularly bring out things that are more unique to Luke as we go. We saw last time in chapter 7 the faith of the centurion. I'm not dealing with the next portion of the raising of the Son of A widow in the town of Nain, but I would read today, beginning at verse 18 of Luke 7, all the way through verse 35 of this, to show you two things that I believe are deliberately contrasted here for our learning and understanding. Listen carefully to God's holy word. The John spoken of here is John the Baptist. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those that have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, for this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Then he asked, "'To what, then, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like?' "'They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, "'We played the flute for you, you did not dance. "'We sang a dirge, you did not cry. "'For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, "'and you say, "'He has a demon.'" The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is God's Word. We need to hear it, praying that the Lord Himself would speak through it to us. Not long ago in 2008, Hollywood actually managed to make a movie that treated some subjects of Christian faith with sensitivity. The film was called simply by the title Doubt. Meryl Streep was the actress in what I believe should have been an Academy Award Best Actress performance if they gave the Academy Award for acting, which they don't. They give it for politics. But nevertheless, this was a fine, fine film, and I recommend it to you. Meryl Streep played Sister Aloysius, a nun aging, probably close to retirement age. She looked much older than the actress herself. She was the principal of a Roman Catholic school in the Bronx, New York, in the year 1964. I grew up with many of my neighborhood friends going to parochial schools, and they always told me about the nuns. I thought those ladies in black were to be feared, and I guess they were where my friends went to school. They said, those nuns, they all have rulers and yardsticks, and they didn't mean to teach measurement. They meant to use on the backs of hands or even on the bottoms of disobedient students. Well, that's the kind of a nun Sister Aloysius was, feared by her students and even by her teachers to some extent. She was suspicious. She was a disciplinarian. And her greatest object of suspicion in the film is the young priest of the parish, Father Flynn, who is also a teacher in the school. Through some circumstances that aren't fully definitive, she became aware and suspicious of the idea that Father Flynn was showing favoritism to a particular boy who was an altar boy and a student in the school. And she thought this must mean some unhealthy friendship that had to be purged out and gone after. So as the dragon lady principal, she went after it. She pursued the matter. She confronted it. She was ruthless. She even used trickery to try to deceive the priest into confessing something. And he finally, after constant badgering by this woman who was so sure that there was something wrong going on, just requested a transfer to another church and got himself out of the situation. And then at the end of the film, and I am giving it away, I guess, if you watch the film, but I have to for my illustration, the The principal, this lady who was so dogged and determined and, and self-righteous, was talking with a younger nun, and and uh, the younger nun just said, H- how is it you're always so sure of everything? You You always have such confidence that you have the answer. And finally at that moment, the older woman unexpectedly broke down and had a catch in her voice and tears in her eyes, and she said, Oh, I have doubts. I have terrible doubts. Well, if you ever wondered about strong personalities of faith who can entertain significant uncertainties whether about actions that they have taken or about their own beliefs to some extent, you need only meet John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, sending a crucial question to Jesus from his prison cell. Doubt is what we want to talk about today. And doubt in its milder form, I really believe we are taught on other occasions as well as this one, is a normal experience for all of us who are believers in Christ. We all have questions about God's plan in our lives as it unfolds, as as things happen that we think, well, I don't know why that is happening right now. Or we have questions about doctrines that aren't clear to us, or God's providence in the midst of suffering that might be going on. Many times I think we identify with a man who's Words, whose famous sentence is given in Mark 9.24, the man who spoke to Jesus and said, Lord, I do believe. Now will you help my unbelief? There's so many gaps, Lord. There are things that have to be filled in. Will you help me? That should describe us. Today, I think we'll see through the lens of this text a form of doubt that is common among Christians that need not condemn us either in God's eyes or our own, the qualms and things we have that we just don't understand because, as Corinthians describes it, we see things through a glass, darkly. We don't see with x-ray vision everything God is doing. But we also want to see in this text today another category of doubt, a different category, And, and this is somehow we think it's all one or all the same. It isn't. There's another whole species of doubt that rebels against reason, rebels against Scripture, refuses plain evidence that God puts in front of us, and then makes decisions more or less in an agnostic attitude that says, don't confuse me with facts. My mind is already made up. And so I have just two main points from this text today examining these two forms of doubt. The first that Luke 7 tells about as natural questions that come from believing people, people who do believe the truth about Christ. But secondarily, another kind of doubt, it's self-contradictory, it's unreasonable, and ultimately, if persisted in, it earns the condemnation of God. So first of all, verses 18 to 28 here of Luke 7 show what in the end is an encouraging example, even though it doesn't look like it at first, of innocent doubt from a great believer. Now, you need to know the -the behind-the-scenes story because John the Baptist has more or less disappeared between his time that we saw him at the baptism of Jesus in Jordan in in, uh, chapter 4 and now chapter 7, what's happened to him. In between. Well, the story is told in a complimentary way in Mark 6, if you want to consult it. And we find there that not too long after the public ministry of Jesus got underway, the public ministry of John came to a fairly abrupt end because he had been preaching with particular strength and criticizing Herod Antipas, who was a territorial ruler there, half Jewish, half of another nation, tolerated by Rome, allowed to have a certain amount of power. This isn't Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. He's gone. This is Herod Antipas. And because John criticized Herod for having an affair with his sister-in-law and then marrying her while she was still married to his brother, that got him in trouble. And he's now locked up in a fortress you can see today called Machiris, a fortress near the Dead Sea that was also partially a palace that Herod spent some of his time in. And he could actually visit there and talk with John or see John close at hand in the prison adjacent to his palace. So John had gone from being one of the most powerful and admired men of his day, people ran out to hear what he had to say, to now being deserted, relatively friendless, and in jail knowing that he could easily lose his life, and most of you know the rest of the story, that due to a drunken party, Herodias, who hated John, had her will and had his head on a platter. But that hasn't happened just yet. Here he is languishing in prison, hearing about, a little bit of hearsay, visitors tell him about Jesus, whom he had pointed to at the River Jordan and said, "'Here's the Lamb of God.'" who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the Messiah. John had had that key role, and he surely wondered, what is Jesus doing? What's the Messiah doing now? And he got reports, and as a result of those reports, he now sends a question to Jesus that is an amazing question. And We have to ask ourselves what was behind it. Well, one of the things we have to remind ourselves is that When John said Jesus was going to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, among the things he thought would be fulfilled and rightly thought was that the Messiah would burn up the chaff of the kingdom of God with unquenchable fire. He would bring judgment on unbelievers. And certainly that had been promised. But here was John in prison thinking to himself, well, the last report I heard, Pilate is still governing In Jerusalem, his palace hasn't fallen down. No Roman that I've heard about has had his beard singed off by God's fire from heaven. And here I am, the prophet of God, languishing in prison under the thumb of a moral degenerate and a lackey to Rome. Why is this happening? Where's the fire that the Messiah was supposed to bring? And so John the Baptist, a man of faith without a doubt, had this kind of a doubt or this kind of a question coming what you might call out of his dark night of his soul. And he relays this question to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come? I said you were, remember, back there at Jordan. I said you were the one. And then he puts a barb in it that that actually puts a kind of ouch in this question when he says, or should we look for another? That's a rather sharp question. And I'm a little embarrassed on the human plane for John. I want to thank John. I wish I could have paid him a pastoral call and said, Come on, John, buck up here. You're worthy of better questions than this. Your prophecy about Jesus was right. I know your circumstances are difficult right now. But isn't it possible, John, that? That what you are hoping for in terms of, of judgment and dramatic action are things that God had promised the Messiah would bring at his second coming, not necessarily immediately right now. You see, John wanted that final wrath of the judgment day, the great day of the Lord, to come down, and it wasn't time. Isn't it true that when God has promised he'll do something, we tend to look at his promises, and we we do what's called foreshortening of them. We we say, well, God has promised this, and so why isn't it happening? What's going on right now? Why isn't God doing something? It doesn't seem like anything's happening. I'm impatient. Come on, God, get on track. Do what you said you were going to do. And quite often what we're doing is foreshortening his schedule here, just like John the Baptist was. Well, do you see how Jesus responds to this Is there any note of impatience or anything of, I can't believe John asked a question like that, or go tell John to get straightened out, or anything? No. He very gently responds. First of all, he points to things that are happening. He says, look what's happening. Go tell John about the miracles, about the people uh, who are being healed, about the dead being raised. And by the way, verse uh, 22 here is, is almost a complete reiteration of several passages from Isaiah of predictions of what would come when the Messiah came. In other words, Jesus is saying, go tell John the the prophecies are being fulfilled in everyday events. They're happening, wonderful things. Make sure he knows of those. And then he says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I think he knew that John was not going to fall away. But here, you see... Jesus treated this doubt, this question that even sounds a little sharp when it's stated as an innocent question, an understandable question, a question founded in the tough circumstances that John was dealing with and and his humanly foreshortened faith. And he went on then to praise this man and say, let me tell you something, there's never been a greater man who ever lived than John the Baptist, and that wasn't just true back when he prophesied, it's true right now. In terms of his historic uniqueness and usefulness in the kingdom of God, nobody has a higher place than John. And yet Jesus puts a hook on this to teach us something by saying, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What did that mean? How can you or I possibly be greater than John the Baptist? Well, we're not greater in terms of historic, unique significance of role. John had a role that nobody else could carry or possibly have, and in that role, he was supreme among human prophets, the one who introduced the Savior to the world. But you see, there is a way in which we, not being superior of our own selves, but of spiritual privileges, we are greater in what we know and have been able to see from our historic vantage point about God and his kingdom and his gospel. And Jesus suggests here that even a brand new Christian who maybe has only read the gospel of John or Mark or something and has just come to be awakened to who Christ is and what he has done in the world and and knows very little, still knows actually more than John the Baptist knew. He has this wide-angle lens to see the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the connections to Old Testament prophecy, all these things, you see, that we as simple Christians can know today that John didn't know, Abraham didn't know, Isaiah didn't know, David didn't know. What privileges we have. You would think that our doubts would be smaller and fewer based on the wonderful things that God has revealed to us. We have greater reason for comprehension of the plans of God and confidence in them, and yet we're still human, and we still have those qualms and questions, don't we? This past week I had a wonderful visit with a member of this church in her late 90s, wonderful sweet lady of God, and we talked about spiritual things and and her trust in Christ and and I don't think I'm betraying her confidence, to tell you that she wanted to share with me that she said, Pastor, I often wake up in the night, and I have questions and and things that I don't understand yet. All these decades I've lived now in my 90s, I don't understand so many things, and sometimes I'm sure that my questions are so big, I, I just wonder whether I even qualify to belong to Christ. And we had to go back over things, And I know I was able not just to falsely assure her, but genuinely assure her that she was a child of God and that we all have the weak flesh that in our emotions tilts and wobbles and, you know, withdraws and comes back and so on and leaves us in a weakened state so that humanly sometimes we're we're just not trusting the things we should trust. C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend once about this kind of thing. He had been a Christian in a dramatic conversion for a number of years, and he wrote a letter to this friend. Here's what he said He said, I have no rational grounds for turning back on all the arguments that convinced me first of God's existence and mercy in Christ. And yet, he said, the irrational dead weight of my skeptical habits, the spirit of the age, and the cares of each day often conspire to steal away my lively impressions of eternal truth. As usual, the Englishman had a great way of saying things. The spirit of the age, my skeptical habits, and the cares of each day conspire to steal away lively impressions of spiritual truth. There's no doubt he's saying that I'm in Christ, that Christ belongs to me and has saved me, but all these shadows and shades come in and cloud the picture. Personal suffering can do it. Stressful situations in family or work or other areas of our life, illness, can feed doubts. I thank God for the many exhibitions of doubters in the Scripture who are great people of God. Job, certainly the great wrestler with his doubts. Elijah stands up to the priests of Baal and defeats them at Mount Carmel. What a victory. What an amazing thing. And Jezebel sends him a note with a little thread in it. And Elijah takes off into the desert and falls down under a tree and says, that's it. I've had it. I'm no good. Kill me, God. I'm worthless. And the Lord had to minister to him quietly and build him up again and show him that he indeed had a place in his plan. David All those years through his 20s when he was fleeing from the murderous intent of Saul who wanted to kill the future anointed king, he wanted to give up time after time. He doubted, God, what are you doing? You've said I'm going to be king. When is that going to happen? It doesn't seem to be happening. And he expressed that in his psalms, his doubts many times. And yet nearly every time he could come back to resolution and say something like, yet I will hope in my God, or you, my God, are with me, and you comfort me. We will all have questions about what God is doing in the plan of our lives, questions about tough doctrines that maybe we haven't figured out. And we need to learn from John the Baptist to sort of hang those doubts out on the clothesline with the Lord and give them vent, like the Amish clothesline, you know? Hang your doubts out there. And you do that by addressing them to the Lord, That's what John did. At least he didn't brood on his question. He didn't complain to everybody else and say, oh, that Jesus. I said he was the Messiah, and now it's obvious he isn't. He sent the question to the source and asked Christ, explain to me, help me with this. I'm not grasping it. And that's what we can do with our doubts as well. And I think we'll find, as we pray them through at the throne of God's grace, very much the same compassionate response that Jesus showed to John. Well, our second point is a briefer one, and it is stated here in Luke seven thirty-one to 35. He's shown us the allowable doubts of a true believer that he'll treat gently and respect. But now he talks about and moves to the irrational doubt of hardened skeptics. And the bridge to that is verses 29 and 30, where he talks about how the Pharisees had not been in the same category as people who went out to hear John preach and were softened in their hearts and repent and said, Lord, I, I, I bow before you. I want to know what you're doing in the Lord, world. I want to belong to you. But Jesus says the Pharisees never did that. They never received John's baptism. And it wasn't just the baptism that mattered, it was the whole fact that they never repented. They never said, I need anything. They didn't need anything or thought they didn't. They were proud and independent and critical. And it's them that Jesus is talking about in verse 31 and 32. John's doubt had had the consistency of of loose sand. It had been like writing on a chalkboard that could be corrected or erased in a short time. The doubt of these people was more like concrete or letters carved with a steel chisel into granite. The little parable that's in verse 32 is a delightful one. It also appears in Matthew chapter 11. Many people don't ever notice this. We think it it comes from Jesus having observed children playing in the street. And just like children today would, would do the little nursery rhyme, ring around the rosy or something, children had little chants or little songs in that time. And and this apparently was one where they would say, we played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't cry. What are they talking about? Well, it's, it seems that here were, were children who might have been playing wedding, for example. It's going to be a wedding here this afternoon, a, a, a time of great joy with smiles on everybody's faces. But some children wouldn't play the game. They would stand off and say, I'm not playing that game. So they'd say, all right, we'll play a game that sad sacks like you would like. We'll play funeral. Then you can cry. I'm not playing that game either. And Jesus was saying, this is exactly what these Pharisees are like. Their doubts are set in concrete. They're like peevish children that no matter how you change the rules or play the game, they don't want to play. And he was speaking about the ways in which they had rejected John the Baptist by saying, oh, that crazy guy. He's got to be some kind of a nut. He wears animal skins. He eats grasshoppers. He's calling down fire and judgment. You can't pay any attention to him. Oh, and Jesus... Well, for Pete's sake, he eats with sinners and tax collectors and probably gets drunk for all we know. And Jesus is saying, what would it take to satisfy these people? What would ever satisfy them that God would present to their lives? They change their tune every time. The Bible is too legalistic for them, or it's too forgiving. Jesus is too simple, or he's too intellectual. Why, the pastor is too strict in his messages, or he's too permissive. Christians aren't friendly enough, or they're artificial in their friendships. The church administrator will identify with this because it's exactly like the, the blue cards we get some Sundays. It's too hot in the sanctuary. And the person right next to that person sends the card, says it's too darn cold in here. Well, that's exactly what this unbelief is like. You can never satisfy it. Romans 8, 7 says the natural mind is at enmity against God. It instinctively dislikes the Word of God, the Son of God, the Gospel of God, the Spirit of God. And so it's going to measure repentance as being too strict, and it's going to measure grace as being too easy. Nothing can please this person. Its judgments are completely irrational, and yet they would never see their thinking as irrational. And I believe the attention that Jesus is calling to this species of doubt is having us see that this is no trivial thing. This is a malignant cancer. The kind of doubt that John had is about like the common cold. It can be very annoying and maybe very miserable to go through for a period of time, but it's going to go away. God is going to brush it aside at some point by better teaching or comforting you or just getting through it. But this doubt is not easily passed through. If you have this kind of doubt, you're a person, you know, that's always telling others, oh, you know what? I'm a really tolerant guy. I'm tolerant of of all kinds of things and and I'm really open-minded. Well, that's a good joke because the one thing you're not tolerant of or open-minded about is the truth of God, your creator. You shut that out, but you say you're open to everything else. That's dishonest. You say the Bible is full of mistakes and myths. You know, this kind of person. who They, can, they have the answer for the Bible. Oh, everybody knows the Bible's full of contradictions. Everybody knows that, right? I, I always challenge you. Say to that person, well, could we talk about one of those? Which contradiction? Did you oh, everybody knows the Bible's full of contradictions. Wait a minute. Could we talk about one? I'll guarantee you they don't know one that they can intelligently talk about. They never do. They just know it's full of those things. And so they dismiss it irrationally. They haven't studied it. The cross of Christ to such a person is like a stumbling block because they want a nice little neat religion that's, that's maybe organized by 10 or 15 rules, probably not that many, five would be better, written on an index card that they could tuck in their pocket to pull out during the week when they needed a little inspiration, but keep it in the pocket and forget about it most of the time, a convenient little religion with a puny little God so that they can pretend the pitiful righteousness they already possess is enough to satisfy that God. And these people are not bargaining, believe me, on a salvation that says, I want you to bow and give me the allegiance of your whole life to a divine Lord. And that's why they're offended at it. Well, Jesus, I think, gave our text a theme we can conclude on in verse 23 when he said, "'Blessed is the man or woman who does not fall away because of me.'" See, that's what these people were doing. They were falling away. They were falling into the condemnation of God. John didn't go there. John didn't fall under condemnation. His doubts had answers. But be careful, you are not a person nursing a grudge of opposition to Christ that will cause you to fall away. And you say, well, how do I know the difference? Well, I would say it's by your first steps into a repentance that says, Lord, I do believe. I do believe you are the Christ of God. Help me with this unbelief that I have. I love what Jesus says about these children here as a closing thought. The little children's verse we played the flute and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Did you ever think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being music for you? It should come to you, first of all, in terms of a dirge, sad music, because it calls on you to repent and humble yourself and acknowledge sin. But once you hear that music and respond, you're ready to hear the other music of the gospel. The music of the dance. Yes, Presbyterians. Music of the dance. The dance of joy. The dance of delight. The dance of praise and trust in our heavenly King and Savior. We need to respond to that music. Our Father, we ask you to help us to do that. I ask for anyone here today who might be like these blind, irrational doubters. It's easy to say they were just the Pharisees in Jesus' day, but they're all around us. We can't read a newspaper or hardly have a conversation with people at work without meeting these folks whose doubts are hardened and engraved with steel tools against you and your Christ. Humble us, Father. Give us ability to hear the dirge of repentance, but also to dance to the music of grace. May we do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.